0: You are listening to Pastor Dennis Hilton of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please join us as we study the scriptures one verse at a time, finding therein the power of God and the wisdom which leads to salvation. And without further ado, here's Pastor Dennis Hilton. Hopefully our uh, hearts are prepared to uh, look into God's Word and receive it into our hearts. We uh, have been on a journey in Second Corinthians for quite some time now. Actually, it's been right at about a year or so, wow. and uh, we keep marching through, and it's been basically on one theme as we have uh, been working through, but um, uh, we get to kind of get a glimpse again on uh, uh, Paul's heart, uh, heart for the church, the heart for the saints at at Corinth, and uh, of course in in uh, Thessalonians' study that we have on our Tuesday nights, Sometimes it kind of uh, correlates with it in a way, and uh, sometimes I'm almost afraid that as I say 2 Corinthians, I'll say 1 Thessalonians, or vice versa, and so uh, bear with me if I do that. Anyway, what a church leader or a pastor, uh, any servant really, should be consumed with is the desire that the church would be edified, to be built up. Edification is the big theme for the church people. It's for building up of the church. Uh, That's why leaders serve the church, because they want to build up the body of Christ. And that's really the desire for all believers. If you're a believer, you want people to grow in Christ, don't you? We know that we're not there. We're not there at all. We're still on our journey to be made more like Christ. And our text today is a verse that really carries the weight of what uh, that idea is. It's uh, found in 2 Corinthians 12:19. It's a kind of our theme verse of a kind of a large section that we're dealing with today. All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. There's the, the heart of the matter. It's for your upbuilding, beloved. And that's what we're here for. We're here to be built up. We're here to edify others and to be edified. And that's each and every one of us, isn't it? Uh, first thing, uh, obviously, is to glorify God. But in the next line is the fact that we are to be edified. And that should be a passion. It should be a passion for us to present the gospel, that people would be built up and be built up in the faith. And you look at Paul, that was his life, that was his ministry. Um, he sought the Lord, and then his relationship with others was, it's what he lived for. To me to live as Christ, to die as gain, to live as present Christ, uh, to live Christ, to present Christ to people constantly. So we see this pathos, this uh, this emotion, this passion in Paul in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians verse 8, where he says, for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave, gave for what? For building you up and not for destroying you. That's what we're here for. We're not to destroy. We are to build up. Quite a building that this church is. Of course, I read 12, 19, 13, 10. He says it again right near the end of this whole book, this epistle. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. And if you would read through this letter, it would seem, if you were uh, from Corinth, it almost seemed like you were being tore down. As Paul had to defend himself and his authority and his ministry because they were being swayed away by the false teachers. And so that's why he wrote this letter all the way through. He really had a concern for their edification, didn't he? Like he did everybody else, but he sure had it for these Corinthians. Edification, building up, it means strengthening the the members of the body of Christ. It's maturity. We want maturity for each one here in this church, don't we? Paul's life was all uh, about edifying the church, bringing maturity. Everything he did was based around this particular truth. Everything. It was that much focused on this. And so he played a major role in the process of sanctification of these churches that he started and uh, continued to write to or visit. Uh, John MacArthur said this, Paul the Apostle was concerned that his people became like Christ. And it was concern that literally consumed his heart and his mind. It moved his emotions and it moved his will. His concern for them had very little to do with their physical well being, it had very little to do with their health, very little to do with their wealth or prosperity, very little, if anything, to do with their success very little to do with their comfort very little to do with their personal satisfaction or the fulfillment of their desires and goals that was not the real issue for Paul even those were concerns they were not at the top of the list MacArthur goes on to say the faithful pastor's concern was for the sanctification of his people he was concerned for their spiritual well being that's what Paul was about that's what the early church was about That's what the historical church is about, and that's what the church is about today if they are biblical. That's what we do. That's what we're about. Uh, We are concerned with people's physical needs. When they're sick, when they're unhealthy, when things have happened to them, tragic events happen, we are very concerned about that, aren't we? Yes, we are. Don't get that misunderstood. Very much concerned about that. We're concerned about emotional problems When people go through times of um, <clears throat> trials and, and As far as their uh, emotions are, We are concerned about that But there's a bigger concern That is involved here And it's a concern for the saints Becoming stronger in the faith We don't want people to become Christians And just leave them there, do we? We don't want that. Our ultimate goal is maturity, that they would be like Christ, be made in the image of Christ. That's our whole goal. That's what it's about. That's how we glorify God, by being like Christ, more and more in that image. So this is what we're focusing on today. Uh, This is in bold letters, isn't it? It's something that is very automatic. It's axiomatic. We know about this, but it's always good to be reminded that we'd be edified in the person of Christ. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Why don't we stand and uh, ask the Lord to bless us in this word today. Father, we thank you for your truth. You have written us a personal love letter right here that we can understand. May it be precious to us today. May it not go just over... uh, over our heads, uh, but that it would be something that would stick in our minds, that would stick in our hearts, and that we would become even more concerned for our own walk and then others' walks. By your Holy Spirit, that happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are chapter 12, verse 13. You can be seated. I'm sorry there. And actually, uh, that's... Probably really verse 14 that I'm really going to be focusing on. Uh, he said in 13 that uh, I'm not a burden to you. I didn't become a burden to you. And if I did, forgive me this wrong. You know, he wasn't a burden at all. And he's going to be expressing that. Um, we move to verse 14. And he says, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you. And I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Verse 13. He's ready to come to them. He's ready to visit them. I want you to know that Paul is not a selfish person. He is selfless, isn't he? He is sacrificial in going to these people, constantly thinking about them. He sacrificed for them daily. He was willing to give up his life for them many times. God kept him alive until it was time to go. And so that happened uh, much. But he says, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. So we know that he came to Corinth, delivered the gospel, people became saved. He taught them. Um, Paul poured out his heart for them. He left, ministered other places, came back to Corinth, and uh, he then wrote a severe letter, a painful, sorrowful visit was extended to them and um, a severe letter is written and then he writes 2 Corinthians and he's still wondering about them of course he gets the news Uh, so he's paying a a visit and that's what he's speaking of here here for this third time I'm ready to come to you and I'll not be a burden to you I don't want to be a burden look back at chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians verses 1 through 4 2 Corinthians 2 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful But so that you might know the love Which I have especially for you So in that section we see In this thought of Paul Expending himself for their edification Is the fact that he cares for them He loves them He doesn't want to make them sorry Because he doesn't want to be sorrowful He wants to Bring rejoicing He wants to hear about rejoicing He doesn't want to come in there And blast them away Um, He says Here for this third time I'm ready to come to you In verse 14 And I'll not be a burden to you For I do not seek what is yours But you I don't seek anything I'm not trying to take anything I'm not trying to take your money (laughs) He says, I came for you. I sought for you. Paul was there just for them. He wasn't there on the take, was he? Uh, evidently, that's what the false teachers were saying about Paul. Paul didn't want anything they had. He didn't ask for money from them. Matter of fact, he didn't. He, he uh, worked by doing the tent making, um, and then he ministered. He just wanted them for the kingdom. He wanted them for righteousness. He wanted them for holiness. He wanted them for obedience, didn't he? That's really all he wanted, but he didn't take anything from them. So he reminds them. He says, hey, I'm not a burden to you. I didn't seek what belongs to you. Yet that word is going around. He just reminds them and they got to be thinking, well, he didn't take anything from me and then he goes and uses an illustration here in verse 14 for children are not responsible to save up for their parents but parents for their children it's the parents that take care of the children right they go to the expenses of how many how many thousands and thousands of dollars does it take to raise a kid all the way up to the time that they go and live on their own and maybe you know who knows it could, it could be a lot, right? And so he uses that illustration. That is something anybody would understand. Uh, it's interesting to note that children are not responsible to save up for their parents, the parents for the children. Uh, parents should have resources to provide for the needs of the children. That is just a natural thought. Even unbelievers know that, even though some of them don't practice it. But uh, you would think that that would be a natural thing. In First Corinthians chapter four, verse fourteen and fifteen, we can see why he says parents and children here. Uh, the reason is is that he's the one who led them to Christ. He is like a father to them. So he says in 1 Corinthians four fourteen, I do not write these things to shame you. See, he's even doing that way back there in First Corinthians, wasn't he? But to admonish you as my beloved children, you're my children. Why do you say children, Paul? For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. They could have a lot of tutors, a lot of teachers. And they had. They had a lot of different people come in. But he was the one that brought them the saving message of the gospel of grace. Amen, right? He's the father to them, like he was a father to Timothy. So that's the idea, and he's a father, uh, he's a parent. They're the children in that sense, and that they were born through the word of God that he brought to them. So we, we have verse um, 14 here, and verse 15 says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And that's quite a statement that he, he makes here. Most gladly, that means thrillingly. Uh, It means to be elated. I'm elated to spend a lot. Matter of fact, everything that I have. Because the word that he's using here is depanayan. And it means to spend money freely. To spend it freely. Wouldn't you love to just have a a spend? uh, How about when people give you money and say you can spend it anywhere you want. Remember when you were a kid? But don't spend it all in one place. <laughs> whatever they give you, you can you can buy whatever you want. You can do whatever you want with that money. Just spend it freely. So Paul says, I will most glad. I'm elated to spend for you. He's not talking about money here. He's talking about all the stuff that he did for them. And then he uses a word to amplify that. It's expended. It's using the same form of word here. Uh, we're talking about spending freely. And this word here is has the word ek. Ek. Out of. Exhaust. To be exhausted. To spend it all. You know, there's one thing about spending it freely. But then how about spending it all? You know, he leaves nothing left in that sense. The idea is to be exhausted He's saying, I'll spend everything I have until I have nothing left, till I'm exhausted. It's all done. You've heard of uh, athletes, they left it all out on the field. They gave everything they had, right? That's what Paul did. He says, I'm the one who gave, right? And if that's Paul, then he's representing the church. Isn't that what we do In our life, isn't that what we're supposed to do—to give it all? Our Christian walk, our journey—if we really have passion about Christ, we will give it all for Him. Don't hold anything back. That's that's the idea there, and you know the the response to this is is pretty amazing. But look in Romans nine three, just for a moment till we we'll get back to that. Romans nine three. Here's what Paul is speaking about. after eight chapters a great doctrine in romans chapter 9 he continues a doctrine and it's what about the what about the nation of israel what about them what about their rejection what's god's plan and in verse 3 he says for i could wish that myself were accursed separated from christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen According to the flesh, who are Israelites, you're going down. Obviously, the context is speaking about the nation of Israel and the ones who were not the elect ones or elect ones uh, saved yet. Maybe that would uh, be uh, the idea. But he says, I could wish that I were accursed, cut off, separated from Christ for their sake. I'm not so sure what that really means it couldn't happen and maybe that's why Paul said it but I think he goes to the extreme here of saying whatever it takes for them I am willing to give everything that I can for them is almost in a sense so he's saying if it were possible I'd go to hell that they would be saved he's agonizing agonizing for his people this is extreme agony to, to say such a thing obviously it cannot happen but that's how he felt for them is that pathos is that passion we want to have passion in our journey don't we and boy Paul certainly had this and of course Jesus did this in Mark ten forty five, everybody is familiar with this verse this kind of tells it all what Christ did and who he is For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many, for the people who belong to Christ. He exhausted His resources, didn't He? Paul exhausted his resources and there was laid up for him a crown. That's incredible. Paul, I'm amazed. He would gladly spend his life for their souls. And then after that, he gives a statement about, and here's the thanks I get. You ever, you remember your parents, if you're, you know, if you're a parent now and you were a kid and you know they do everything for you you know i mean they give you the clothes and they give you shelter and they give you food and water i mean everything that's needed and education transportation and all that stuff and they say and is this the thanks i get for all this did you ever get that from them as a parent have you done that to the is this the thanks i get so kind of continuing on with that analogy you know and he goes on he says if i love you more am i be am i to be loved less that's doesn't have to be interpreted does it i give you more and you seem to be giving even less even it's almost like you hate me you know what's what's going on here the more he gave the less they loved that's the kind of giving we're talking about he gave them love. They didn't really return the love back. The only thing he really wanted for them was that they'd have appreciation for the gospel. That it would truly light them up. And so that's why he's writing this as as he does. So in verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Comes right back. I didn't burden you. <laughs> and he uses this... Um, this language again. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. What, what, what has he been using all along in the last few chapters? What is it? Sarc- sarcasm. sarcasm. He's a master of sarcasm, in a biblical way. Is <laughs> this thanks again? Then he comes back with, "The crafty fellow that I am, I deceived you." Obviously not. I wasn't a burden to you. Whatever your attitude is, I didn't change. He was selfless in his sacrifice as their love grew less and less. They were diffident to him, they were cold to him. They had even accused him of wrongs that were not true. And he says, the crafty fellow that I am and we start looking into his integrity here we first looked uh, in the first part of his selflessness right he it, it's been for them it hasn't been for himself he is not selfish we as Christians are not to live for self we are not to be selfish only thing is that's our pull that's our drive we constantly go back to self We are to die to self. It's it's an ongoing battle. Christ comes back, right? Keep dying to self and we become more like Christ. Start becoming even more like Paul and then absolutely the ultimate is Christ. Uh, We get into looking at his integrity in verse 16 through 19. Uh, Boy, I really took you guys in. I really deceived you guys, didn't I? What did I get? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. The whole thought is just absolutely ludicrous. Do you think Paul was scamming them? You know, you get that on your email, the scams and such, you know. They knew that he didn't take anything from them, and he was not out to get stuff from them. They knew he hadn't taken anything. They knew that. I think the reminder is really convicting them pretty severely right now when he says, you know, a crafty fellow that I am. What about this word crafty? Ponergus? Gus. The false teachers are deceptive. Crafty. This crafty fellow. Deceitful. Crafty. Some kind of craftiness. It's a group term. A, a, a Greek term. Uh deceptive people satan is deceptive we've we've looked at that term throughout second corinthians here when we talked about deception deceiving satan and the angels of light all the deception that's involved there and so now he says i'm a crafty fellow <laughs> you know that's what they were calling him evidently the false teachers were doing that and maybe some of the corinthian people of the church there so false teachers said, yeah he's a really crafty guy (laughs) better watch out for him right and so he uses the the word here uh, I took you in by deceit we know he didn't you know what the word there is it's dolo deceit it is um, a fish hook good illustration that's really uh, what it means it's fishing and hunting if you guys like fishing and hunting that's that's the coolness about this word here um frankly there's nothing more deceptive than fishing to the fish <laughs> they're the ones who you yeah, they don't appreciate our deceiving you know if you ever fished i'm sure everybody has fished somewhere along the line or know what that is doing i mean the whole idea is you don't drop your line down and you know with your lure and it's saying hey i would like you for dinner <laughs> You, know, you don't you don't tell them that, right? They're not going to You think they're going to read it? It's human. But, you know, you don't put something down like that be, be and and let them know about it. You know, they're they got a little bit of smarts about them. You don't just drop down a great big big, big old hook down there that's just so obvious and that's gleaming there and go, "Oh, no way. I'm not touching that." You put something down there that looks like dinner. Right for them. And so you deceive the fish. Wow, you ever thought about that? I think you can do that and be okay with that, though. That's probably one time that you can deceive and it be okay. I can deceive fish because it's not people that you're deceiving. Don't feel guilty if you go fishing sometimes. Say, oh, I don't want to be a liar. We're not to deceive people. So I can't do that. Well, then we'll we'll never eat fish again, will we? (laughs) So, that's one idea for the hunter, the trappers. Let's say you ever watch those Alaska shows. And it's all cold and freezing. And summertime's pretty good to watch those. If you're you're real hot, it's like 30 <laughs> below, 60 below, ridiculous. And people are out there. I, I don't, I don't, I can't figure that out. But anyway, you know, they're and and they've been they go out and trap, you know, before all this, or even at that time, they need meat, right? So they they bait that trap, and then they come back and try to get. It. How about the? If, if you want to get in, in hot weather, you go down to Louisiana and and do the alligator thing. You guys ever seen those shows? You know, I can't understand a word those guys are saying. So they have to put the words on the screen to tell what they're saying in Louisiana. Yeah. 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 The Cajuns. <laughs> the Cajuns. Uh, Paul said, "Hey, I baited the hook, and I'm really a clever guy, aren't I?" I went fishing for you and I hooked you. <laughs> I went hunting for you and I caught you in my trap, didn't I? I took you in by deceit. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 talks about Paul and his integrity, his honesty, and truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, one twelve: 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience... That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom and in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Here he says that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in deceit, not in trapping. Chapter nine of Romans, we were in nine three a while I go, back to Romans nine one. I am telling the truth in Christ. And this is to the same kind of people. It's not the Corinthians this time. It's to the Romans. But he says, I'm telling the truth, you know, to the the, the Jewish people. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Uh, you know, I testify this. This is the truth in Christ. He's not lying. He's not deceiving, right? Galatians chapter 1, verse 20 the very book after 2 Corinthians in the very first chapter, verse 20. Now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Evidently, there were people that was saying that he was lying. He says, I tell you the truth, I am not lying. I'm before God. In that sense he, you know, there's like a a swearing there. You know, this is truth. What do I have to do to tell you? Before a holy God saying this. Second Corinthians chapter eleven. This happens to be the epistle that we are in presently now. Chapter eleven, just a few verses back really. Uh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. This is the word of God, so he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not lying, right? It's all truth. The word of God is truth, in every aspect. So that's the kind of Paul uh, person that Paul was, and he wasn't deceiving them then and as go around saying that he was crafty. Uh, probably had a lot to do with the collection that he was taking up. And he started it there in Corinth. They started really giving, and then he went out to some of the other places. They were taking that collection and taking it back to where? To Jerusalem, to the poor saints in Jerusalem whose money had been gone dry. Because they were helping each other out and, and there was a desperate situation in Jerusalem anyway. Uh so he was going to take it back to the poor saints in Jerusalem, and so the corinthians kind of had to be encouraged to keep taking that offering up every week um so the false teacher said paul's not telling you the truth i don't tell you something you know he's getting that money he's, he's going to keep it for himself <laughs> so that's the idea that's staying right with the context all the way through isn't it um as we're in 2nd Corinthians, we go back to chapter 12, verse 16, I didn't burden you, and crafty fellow that I am, I didn't take you, you know, by deceit obviously, certainly I have not taken advantage of you, through any of those, whom I have sent to you, have I, he says, okay, I didn't take advantage of you, and the ones who I've sent to you, like Titus, Titus went to Corinth, for him, and they took up, an offering there or take that there anyway um, that's the idea and he said I sent Titus and you know very well he didn't take advantage of you at all either did he he didn't do that I never defrauded you Titus didn't defraud you Timothy didn't defraud you any of the other ones the other ones that went along with them um, in verse 18 I urged Titus to go and I sent the brother with him so he had another one with him it's good to have um, you know, two together. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? And they would say, "Well, no, not really." Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So he's saying our conduct was impeccable. There's nothing that you can blame us on. And he moves now to verse 19. And we get to the very motive of all of this, where we started out with our introduction. This is where we now have come. This is the verse that I would just circle in the middle of all of this whole section, because this is what it's about. All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved comes to the kind of the, like the climax, hasn't it? He's been building his case up point after point after point. I mean, the whole letter he's built it up, built it up. I mean, they don't have a leg to stand on, do they? And it gets to this. And, you know, he's been building up even in this little section. And he comes to the, the major point. And of course, he's saying, you're not my judge. You're not my jury. God knows full well the truth and he is my judge. If you were looking look in the, the same epistle here, chapter 2, verse 17, he said something of the same sort. Why do we keep going to other scriptures? Just so that we wouldn't interpret this on our own without the scripture backing it up, right? And so that's what he does and he keeps repeating things over himself as he as he talks to them. So in 2:17 he says for we are not like many peddling the word of God but as from some sincerity but as from God. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. He's our judge. We speak, you can see it, you can see by our actions and what we've said and it's been legitimate We didn't peddle the word, but it was from sincerity. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said the same thing to them. In his first epistle, starting at verse 3, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. I can't even judge myself. It's not a major thing that you can judge me or human courts. He says, I can't even judge my own heart. You know, we have a conscience and we'd pray that we would have that, but even sometimes there are things inside of us we're not even aware. There's certain sins that we have practiced or, or done or we said something we didn't even know that we said, but we did. He says in verse four, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself. I'm not conscious of anything. If I were, then I'd try to get that right. Yet I am not by this acquitted because of my own conscience, right? Just because we're the judge doesn't make it final, does it? But the one who examines me is the Lord. You know what? There's one judge over all of this. This great mess that the world is in has been since mankind's sin. And ultimately comes back to the great judge, doesn't it? He is over me. But see, that's what people who do not know Christ... They don't want that. They don't want anybody over them. They don't want a God telling them what they can and cannot do and that they need a Savior. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to judge, do they? thing is, whether they have in their thoughts or not The truth is still there. They can bury their heads in the sand and say, there is not a judge. There is not a God. He's not over me. They can make that that up all they want and go to their grave that way. But they will then realize immediately that there is the judge of the universe. Anyway, Paul says that. Now, we move into the very motive of all of this. Paul is saying, all that I'm trying to accomplish here ultimately benefits you. This is good for you. Everything that I'm doing is not taking from you. It's giving to you. It's for your benefit. It's for your good. When you hear the truth and really hear it, you're built up. In the faith when you hear the word of God when you read the word of God when you hear true preaching of the word of God true teaching of the word of God via many ways it benefits you it builds you up line by line precept by precept over the course of many years it may not seem like it at the time but it's certain things that just stick it's like another brick that goes in. That one brick doesn't seem like a lot. But you get another brick there, and then another brick, and another brick, and another brick, and a lot of bricks. You just keep building those bricks. You finally have a building, right? Each one of those bricks really count. When you learn something about Jesus Christ, and that's really what it's about. It's not about the person who's delivering it. It is about the person of Christ. And we focus on Him, and we seek Him out. We are benefited. When we hear the tr- truth, we're built up in the truth. Paul was the spokesman of God, wasn't he? Anybody who brings forth the word of God, they're speaking for God. They're, they All they're doing is they're the messenger, just a messenger. That's all a messenger that brings a truth from God Almighty. We sit here reading this morning and don't ever take it for granted that you have a Bible that you can take home with you. You don't have to come up here and then read, read a scroll and then try to memorize that and, and think on a verse for the rest of the week. You have this all the rest of the week. You have your own personal Bible. You have more than one Bible at home, I'm sure. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's an incredible thing. This is something God has told us about Him and His will for our lives. It's a love letter. And it's doing it for our good. I think that's an awesome thing. It's all for our upbuilding. It's all for our edification. And Paul's saying you're not my judge, but you are my spiritual responsibility. I'm really concerned for you. Word there for upbuilding or edification is oikodamas. To build up, to build. Why do we offer? Worship service on Sunday morning. Why do we. Why have we offered here. Um, uh, systematic theology. Sunday afternoon. Why do we. Why do we offer a Bible study on Tuesday nights. Why do we offer that. So that people would be built that you would be built up, that you'd be edified. It's not just an exercise. I'm going to show up on Sunday morning because it's the time to worship. It's just, the, it's just what we do. That's what, that's what I do. Good, that's what we do. But we want to be built up here. We want to glorify God, worship Him. And as we worship Him, we're really being built up. You don't say, oh, I've got to build myself up. You don't have to be concerned with building yourself up. As you worship God, as you seek Him, as you seek Him with other people who are like-minded, guess what? You are edified. When you're not here, you know what that means? There's a little piece that we didn't get edified by that goes into that brick. You know, we miss out. It's so important. I can't say that enough. And um, so, you know, if, if we miss... The word of God, when it's being taught, and 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 we discuss that and such, it's it's a major part of how we uh, go along, and and it's, that's our growth. We want to grow, and if we're seeing people that are not growing or not seemingly grow, aren't we concerned about them? Don't we pray about them? May pray about them individually. May not ever even be mentioned to anybody, but we we should have that for each other, you know, and that's that is so important. Uh, let's stay on this topic of the motivation of this as we go back to Ephesians 4:11. Here's how God has set it up. We have second Corinthians right Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians 4 first three chapters is the practice uh, the position that we are in Christ and then in chapters four through six is our practice in Christ. And so as he gets into chapter four verse 11. He talks about gifts that are given to the church. He gave some as apostles. Those apostles were the ones who many of, or some of them, wrote the word of God to us. They were the foundation, as 2nd Corinthians 12. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, set up churches some as pastor-teachers pastor-teachers you can't be a pastor without teaching you can be a teacher without pastoring but a pastor also has to teach and that's why that hyphen in the Greek that's what it means those are gifts that are given to the church as far as leadership is concerned so that they bring the word of God to you that you can understand and why do you want to understand? well it says here for the equipping of the saints so that they be equipped. We just don't come to church and Bible studies just to go because we're supposed to, but what does it do? It equips us. If you're not being equipped, what's going on, right? The equipping of the saints. Why why do I want to be equipped? Paul says for the work of service. Service. I'm not a minister, right? Is that what you're saying? I'm not a minister. Yeah, you are. Because service, diakonos in the Greek, means servant. It means minister. Maybe not a professional minister, but it means to serve. So so that you would be equipped so that you would work out your salvation in serving. And look what the last phrase is in that verse. To the building up of the body of Christ. That, in a nutshell, is what your life is about. That's what you're really about. It's not how much money you can make. It's not what kind of job that you have. What you have planned for retirement. Uh, the Things that you so desire. It's not about those things. And here it is right here a lot of people say I have no meaning in life I I have no direction in life I need direction well if you're a Christian you are to get equipped so that you would have this service to others so what would that bring a building up of the body of Christ so that's talking to the pastor there right no it's saying the pastor equips So that others can Serve and serve also To serve the word of God To serve counseling Whatever physical things That can be done And it says this How how often are we supposed to do this 13 until we all attain To the unity of the faith That we're thinking exactly the same Well we're like minded Here at this church In a lot of things A lot of doctrine right but there's a lot of things that we would disagree on, right? Black, not black and white issues, but we're just, you know, I'm just talking about certain things, you know, that are not, not obvious, you know. But it says until the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We're talking about ultimately to the time that Christ comes back, and then we'll all think alike exactly 100%. You know that? and not robots we'll each have our own personality but yet we'll be thinking right all the time we'll never offend anybody and we'll never be offended because they have a different opinion than we do because we'll have absolute truth wow to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ to the very measure the, the very stature what's the standard? it's Christ that's what we're shooting for. That's not gonna happen until he comes back. But we're still shooting, we're aiming for that, aren't we? You know we're aiming for that. And it's gonna happen. So that if we do that, God will be glorified in this church. If we're doing that, I think we're doing that. Aren't we doing that? And we can always use improvement though. Chapter 10, verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. We'd read that earlier this morning. Chapter 13, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. We read this too. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when I'm present I need not use in severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, edifying, and not for tearing down. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. This is what it's about. We're to edify others. Not to live for ourselves. Do we know that? Yeah, everybody knows that. Right? We always know that. Only thing is, we forget. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to what? Build you up. What is it? I commend you to God. The word of His grace. You can't speak enough about His grace, can you? His grace, His gift, the whole thing, the whole word of God, which is able i got a feeling that's a power word, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You have an inheritance waiting for you. That's a good motive, isn't it? Here's what I have waiting for me. And I want to be built up. And it's the word of grace your very own relationship with Christ builds you up. As you seek Him out, That you, there should be more time spent in your own time with the Lord than even when you meet with God's people, right? It's your relationship with the Lord. You're reading and you're praying. We come to the next one, verse 20 through 23. This is the last part of this section We're on today now. Uh, <laughs> did I put that in there? 21 I have on my title, don't I? Okay, I have 23-23. Good point. Okay. Anybody adds to the word of God? <laughs> I don't have any extra verses. Thank you, Michael. That was wild, What the? I look down here. I go, where's twenty? There's not in there. Yes, on my paper it is, isn't it? You're not supposed to really read those things and study them. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. I need to pay attention sometimes. <laughs> For I am afraid that perhaps... When I come, I may find you to be not what I wish, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, (laughs) that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Yeah, there doesn't need to be any of the verses after that. <laughs> I'm afraid. Did you hear Paul say that? He said it twice. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Why are you afraid? The word is phobos. Phobia, right? There's a deep-seated anxiety deep-seated concern he has this phobia he's concerned about the people and their sinful life he doesn't know he says perhaps by the way he does get good news doesn't he and when he goes there he doesn't have to correct them but at the time when he wrote this he couldn't he didn't know he says I'm I'm thinking that this is what's going to happen. Paul's just pouring out his heart, isn't he? I don't want this to happen. I'm afraid it is. Perhaps it could be. Sin is the very enemy of everything we've been talking about this morning, of our spiritual edification, of our spiritual progress, of our spiritual maturity. Our own sin impedes spiritual progress or sanctification, if we may. We can say that. Sin does not contribute to our sanctification, does it? It sets us back. It can set us reeling. He He's concerned about the sin in the lives of the children. Parents can identify with that. They are concerned about some of the things that they can get into from the time they start crawling or even before that, right? Way before that. All the way up through their adolescent years and their teen years especially right and on into the 20s the 30s can be about that a parent is concerned about that that's what Paul is here he is a, he he's had a broken heart before by the things that have happened in Corinth and uh, the Corinthians were following the false teachers lies and f- when you follow false teaching and bad teaching, you know what follows suit to that? Follow, when you have error in your thinking, it also will then show forth in your walk. It always does that. Iniquity follows error. And that's what he's concerned about. And they definitely had a great potential to sin. Where is he writing to? Corinth. 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 And he gives a list of sins It's it's a little list Just a few words But it disrupts the unity of the church Now can you see why he would fear this And these words that he uses Every one of those sins Are mentioned in 1 Corinthians also And he he wrote chapters On each one of those words sometimes (laughs) Really concerned about it Because he saw it It was a selfish culture That they lived in every one of those sins was practiced deeply in Corinth and he's certainly knowing what the society is like outside the church. This is what they grew up in. It was a selfish culture. as an arrogant society. There were tumults and upheavals and disputes and slanders and gossiping and those people dragged it right on into church when they came there. That's what happens. That's that's carrying that, uh, that flesh in. That's what we battle with the rest of our lives. We bring in the culture of Jeff City. We bring in the culture of Missouri. We bring in the culture of this nation and the world. We bring it on in. But if we're being informed by God's word and we're being edified, now we're bringing less of that in. See, a church is not a perfect place, is it? Every one of us bring in the garbage. Right here, but you know what? If we're letting God's word control us there and being filled with God's spirit, it doesn't blow out and affect others, does it? So um, he uses some some terms here. Uh, strife, for example, he spoke about that in one Corinthians one eleven. It means rivalry. It means discord. Uh, he mentions angry tempers uh, or jealousies, zelotes. Uh, uh, that's envying um, tempers are, are outburst. Uh oh road rage boy they do that on, they mention that a lot on the, the news these days and you know we are a oppressed society in the sense that we we are busy people and we have to get to the next place and then get to the next place after that and everything's all timed out and I got to do this, got to do that and we forget sometimes and we start taking in that rage, these outbursts and we're saying things out of our mouth that we would totally be embarrassed by if another Christian heard us. And and uh those that's the kind of tempers that he's talking about, sudden explosion of anger, hostility. You find that in 1 Corinthians. And then disputes and that's factious attitudes, its divisiveness it's partisanship, and we see that in First Corinthians one eleven. And then he mentions the sin of slander there. Uh, that's loud mouth criticism. It's public criticism of people where everybody can hear you. Slander, right? And um, there's another uh, word that is gossip, and that word is katalalia. or kataleli. I think is is slander. That's an onomatopoeia word. You know, katalalia. You know it's dealing with slander And then there's a word of uh, Thurasmas <laughs> uh, Thurasmas It's dealing with uh, again Another onomatopoeic word It's um, um, criticizing But pst- Silently Not publicly So you see those two words There gossiping and slandering There's arrogance It's another uh, onomatopoeic word And it's hot air uh, it's puffed up, overblown, you know, right? And of course, Paul referred to that in first Corinthians four, chapter five, chapter eight, And then he closes with disturbances in in that section. there, that list of sins in verse twenty. Um, and all at the same time, he's mourning. For this, you know, in one sense, but when he gets there, he doesn't want to mourn. He wants to be joyful. He doesn't want to grieve. Um, it's how they were living, you know. And boy, he's concerned. And then he closes here at the end. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I'll mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past. And of course, many of them knew that. Not repented of. There's three words impurity, immorality, sensuality which they have practiced. Uh, These are getting into the immoral world. These are the dominant sins that were in Corinth. Do you see a pattern here in Corinth that is found in America? Do do you see these in the world? Absolutely. Well these were happening in the social life in Corinth. And immorality was just rampant. It was horrible. First word is impurity, and it's ah catharsia. And I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of ideas and illustrations on it, but ah means negative. Catharsis, it means uh, cleansing. It's the opposite of cleansing, it's talking about unclean, not clean. The next word there is immorality. Uh, the word in the Greek is pornéia, in the English it is pornography. Um, it's dealing with um, the word prostitution, that kind of thought. Um, I guess when you when you think of that, it's, you prostitute yourself when you engage in any kind of sex outside of marriage. And that is the idea there. Any sex that happens outside of marriage is wrong, it's evil, it's wicked. It's mentioned right here at the end of Corinth. That's what they had once practiced. Can you imagine that? Well, we know all about that here, don't we? Immorality. Impurity. He says you're prostituting yourself on sexual acts outside of marriage. Uh, That's what had happened before. He had to address them on some things like that. And then he uses the word sensuality. Um, you can see what these words are all dealing with. This this is one of the big, big, huge problems our nation has. And This whole thought, aselge is the Greek word, a is negative, aselge uh, means to be restrained, or selge does, aselge is unrestrained. Just let it go Everything It doesn't matter There are no morals People can do Whatever they want When they want Let it Let all see You know And people love To be naked And prayed Naked before Other people Is publicly indecent It's blatant Without restraint This was happening In Corinth This is sin Folks This is ugly We've, We saw some of those Other words They're ugly they're evil. They're wicked. Uh, this is not the lifestyle of a church. The only thing is um, we can see that what if one has done one of these, two of these, three of these. Uh, I'm talking about all that. in in the two list here. Well, I can tell you that the church ought to be the safest place in the world for sinners to go to. Because... They can be immediately confronted with that thing that's bothering them so much, their sin. And gentleness can come out of that because they are brought to righteousness. No longer having guilt. And the word of God can take that away. Sinners make up the church. If you're saved by grace, praise God, right? So the the church is the safest place where sinners can come because they're called to repent. The preaching of the Word of God and the influence of the Spirit of God makes an impact on each one of us. Whether it be a little sin that we have in our mind or a huge sin, it's still sin, right? And we all battle it. I'm not saying you. I start with me. We know that. Thank you for letting me come in here because if you knew things that, about me, you wouldn't want me to be up here. But as Alistair Begg says, if I knew things about you, I wouldn't want you to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Repent. God does. He, he doesn't expect perfection, but He does expect and He desires repentance. That's what the church offers. When we take the lord's Supper here in in a little bit as we close, that's what it's about. It's a time to repent. It's great that we can come in together and say, "Hey, brother, I know I know it's your battle, and i okay, you know I want to pray for you. I know it's tough it's hard uh, we, we want to repent the passion passion has to be there, personal holiness for people that's what we want. The hardest thing to hear is that people are unrepentant of their sin and they don't admit it. They don't bring it out and they let it stay there. And that's wrenching to Paul. And so that's what God is asking for in his church. Repentance, brokenness over sin, a contrite heart. Remember David? Confession of sin, admission of sin. Desiring to turn from it. That's all a part of repentance. That's Christ's call to all of us. We should be concerned for the sanctification of the church. The holiness. The building up of the church. The repentance of the people. And so our prayer for each one of us. Is that sin is always crouching at the door trying to nab us in any way that it can in temptation. And if we do give in and we shouldn't, we want to fight, we want to win the battle, we want triumph, but if we lose, we repent. And the grace of God washes us clean in in the practical aspect. If you're a Christian, you've been washed clean already. But this is what we have on on a daily basis. Isn't that good news, folks? Isn't that the grace of God? And did you see Paul's grace all throughout this little section? Even though he had to mention these sins, it's for their good so that they don't destroy themselves.